Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Each week, as I said, this summer, we are looking at one classic Bible story uh, from the Old Testament, and one of the stories that, for the most part, uh, Western people are at least somewhat familiar with. And today, we're going to be looking at the story of Samson, which is told in the book of Judges, chapters 13 uh, through 16. Um, if you're not familiar with the book of Judges, I would say that out of all the books in the Bible, Judges is the book most likely to get picked up by HBO. And even then, it might be a little bit too violent or a little bit too uh, gory. It is a gnarly story of sin and corruption and violence and lawlessness. Um, in fact, the central verse that the author uses to kind of characterize the era of the judges is that in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It's kind of a way of saying that there was chaos that was rampant. And so to catch us up in the story, Moses has died, Joshua has died, Israel has no king, and God raises up then a series of judges to serve as the leaders of Israel. Now when we hear judges, we think of a guy sitting in a courtroom with a gavel, um, and that's not the picture. In the Bible, these judges are more like military generals that are overseeing Israel's ongoing conquests of uh, the land of Canaan. And so in the book of Judges, we find the stories of these six different people who serve as judges uh, during this time. And the trajectory or the pattern of the book is that each one of the judges kind of gets more and more corrupt. And so we start with three fairly decent judges, and then things start spiraling downward as we get to Gideon and Jephthah, and ultimately uh, the weakest judge of all, a guy by the name of Samson. So um, we've talked a few times throughout this series about how often Christians tend to think that Bible characters are sort of like these ancient heroes of the faith whose lives we should uh, view as role models. And Samson is one of those guys that, for whatever reason, lots of us in our Sunday school days or our Awana days or our children's Bibles, we got this idea that Samson is some sort of spiritual uh, superhero, like a role model to be inspired by. And I know, at least for me, as a Christian kid growing up, going to a private Christian school in the 80s, um, we didn't have Halloween parties at school. We had harvest parties. Maybe you remember that. And instead of dressing up like superheroes or ghosts or whatever, you dressed up as your favorite Bible character. And um, <laughs> so pretty much every dude in the elementary school wanted to go as Samson, right? The big strong guy. He's the closest thing we have to a superhero in the Bible. But here's the thing. If you actually read the story in the Bible... Samson is not a hero, and it's not even close. He's actually a super messed up, shady guy. And yeah, he's incredibly strong and has this superhuman strength, but ultimately, the Bible actually portrays this guy Samson as a violent, womanizing maniac with absolutely no conflict resolution skills who dies in blood and glory getting vengeance 
on his enemies. It's a pretty weak hero. And so we're going to look at the story of what happened just before the story of Sansom and Delilah that Alana read for us. And this is a story that, if you pay attention, deals with the quest for revenge and the myth of redemptive violence. The story starts like this. In Judges chapter 13, there's a Jewish man by the name of Manoah, and he and his wife have been unable to have kids. She's barren. But one day, later on in her years, an angel appears to her, and he tells her that she's going to become pregnant and that she's going to give birth to a son who will become the leader of God's people. So if you're paying attention, we're tapping in to some pretty familiar biblical tropes here, that there's this recurring motif throughout the scriptures of an angel appearing to a woman with no children and telling them that they're going to have a baby who's going to be part of God's plan. Samson is one of those stories. But the unique thing about this angelic gender reveal party is that the woman, who isn't named in the story, is told that her child was to live under what was called the Nazarite vow. Now, the Nazarite vow is something that's explained previously in the story in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, and it's basically something that Jewish people would do for a period of time to dedicate themselves to God in a special way. And so if you were an Israelite and you felt the need to set aside a few days or a few weeks or even a few months to focus on God and to pray and to confess your sin or to seek wisdom for a decision, then you would take a Nazarite vow for a short period of time. And there are three parts to a Nazarite vow as laid out in Numbers chapter 6. The first is that you don't drink any alcohol. The second is that you don't touch any dead bodies. And thirdly, you don't cut your hair. So no alcohol, no dead bodies, no haircuts. Um, Again, back to my evangelical upbringing, this is pretty hard to admit, but I actually did a Nazarite vow for a while when I was in high school. And uh, here's what happened. I was, as we used to say, on fire for the Lord as a sophomore. And I had a friend, my best friend, in fact, who wasn't a Christian. And I really wanted him to meet Christ. And I had read about the Nazarite vow in the Bible. So I made a commitment to pray for my buddy every single day and to not drink and to not touch anything dead and to not get my hair cut until I was saved. But the thing is, or until he was saved, um, the thing is, I was a 15-year-old Baptist, so I already didn't drink. Uh, very rarely felt the need to touch dead things. So basically, I was just growing my hair out uh, and praying for my friend. Um, Here's what's crazy. He came to Christ, and he actually had a dramatic conversion and went from being kind of a wild party kid um, to a serious follower of Jesus and eventually went on to become a missionary and a pastor and a church planter. Um, and we did ministry together for years and years. Now, to tell the full story, things actually kept getting weirder after that. Uh, he eventually like bought a bread truck and plastered it with King James verses and went around the country uh, preaching with a megaphone. And I don't know, maybe I did the vow for too long or something like that. Uh, I think he's in a cult now. But the point of the story is, if you were an Israelite and wanted to set yourself apart... Um, for God, you would enter into this vow. So the woman comes, or the angel comes to the woman and says that she's going to have a baby 
And she does, and she names the baby Samson, and we find out later that when Samson grows up, he's going to have this superhuman strength. We don't know that he actually looked that strong. In fact, he probably didn't because people seemed really surprised or confused at how he was able to accomplish such feats of strength. But apparently that as long as he kept this vow and especially didn't allow his hair to be cut, he was able to do these superhuman feats of strength. So in Judges chapter 14, we're going to pick up the story. Samson now is a young man. And he sees this Philistine woman, and he falls in love with her, and he wants to marry her. Now, the problem is that Samson's family are Israelites, and this woman that he sees and falls in love with is a Philistine. And the problem is that Philistines are the Israelites' worst enemies. If you're an Israelite, you don't even have Philistine friends, let alone try to marry a Philistine woman. And so when Samson comes home and tells his parents that he wants to marry a Philistine woman, uh, it doesn't go over um, very well. So his parents reply in, in Judges chapter 14, verse 3, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get, his wife, to get a wife? And so Samson's parents aren't too happy to hear that their son wants to marry a non-Israelite. And this wasn't just based on their personal feelings or prejudices. God had actually given his people a pretty clear command about what kind of person they should marry. And it goes back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, where the Lord gives a commandment that the nation of Israel are not to intermarry with the people from other nations around them. He says, don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. So God's made it really clear to his people that in the promised land, the Israelites were not to intermarry with people of other nations. And that's what Samson's parents were concerned about. I need to pause here in the story just for a moment because this is another one of those places in the Bible that has been misunderstood and misappropriated in ways that have actually caused serious harm. And specifically for white American Christians, this passage and this theme starting in Deuteronomy 7, has been used to argue that God opposes interracial marriage, specifically uh, between blacks and whites. And I'm not just talking about some Christians hundreds of years ago. In fact, just a few months ago, in a city outside Atlanta, Georgia, a city councilor made national news by publicly speaking as a Christian against interracial marriage. He was speaking out against another candidate for a public office, and he said, I am a Christian, and my Christian belief is that you don't do interracial marriage. That's the way I was brought up, and that's the way I believe. I have black friends, I hire black people, but when it comes to all this stuff you see on TV, when you see blacks and whites together, it makes my blood boil, because that's just not the way a Christian is supposed to live. It would be easy to write this guy off as some sort of wacko southern fundamentalist, but I think if we've been paying attention, most of us know that this kind of thinking isn't actually that rare amongst white evangelicals. And so for a very long time, some of the most prominent Christian colleges 
and universities in the country were some of the very last that were open to integrating black and white student populations. Some of those even had rules or uh, um, had rules against interracial uh, dating on their campuses into the 2000s. Okay, and so um, what we need to know is that this whole thing starts in Deuteronomy 7, and for many, many years, the dominant belief amongst white American Christians was that God prohibited his people from marrying someone of a different race. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about, but this is one of those places where we have to be honest about the white supremacist roots of the tradition that we're part of. So to be clear, Deuteronomy 7 and the entire Old Testament has nothing to do with interracial marriage or relationships. God's prohibition against the Israelites intermarrying has nothing to do with race. They didn't even have that category back then. When God tells the Israelites not to intermarry, he's telling them not to marry outside their faith. He's telling them, don't marry someone who worships a different God than you. And it's right there in Deuteronomy 7.4. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. This was not about race. This was about what we might call religion. There's absolutely nothing in the Bible that opposes interracial marriage. In fact, as followers of Jesus, we celebrate the beauty and the diversity of all humanity, and we seek to share life with deeply with those who are different than us. So we can celebrate something like interracial marriage, which is exactly why I married a Canadian, just to live this out for you. So when Samson comes home, he tells his parents that he wants to marry a Philistine. They're not concerned about her race. They're concerned about her faith. But Samson said to his father in Judges chapter 4, verse 3, he says, get her for me. She's the right one. So his parents give in, and they agree, and they take him down to Timnah, where this woman lives. Now, listen to what happens next. Judges 14, verse 5. Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. But he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. So here's the first part of the story where we see Samson's superhuman strength. He gets attacked by a lion, and we're told that he uses his bare hands to rip it apart. So in case you're having a hard time relating to that, the author gives us a helpful comparison. So like, you know how when you rip apart a young goat? That's how it was for Samson with the lion. That's super helpful, right? (laughs) Um, So he kills the lion, and he leaves it for dead. And he keeps on going to Timnah, where he meets this Philistine woman, and he decides to marry her. Here's what happens next, Jesus 14.8. Sometime later, he went back to marry her. He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it, he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped the honey out with his hands, and he ate it as he went along. So he's on his way to his wedding. And he sees this lion that he had killed a few months prior. And now the carcass is there and it's being inhabited by a swarm of 
bees, and the honey looks really good. So Samson, even though he's not supposed to touch dead things, he reaches in, he grabs some of the honey, he gives it to his parents. He doesn't tell them where it's from because he's violating his Nazarite vow. Okay? A few days later, he gets to his wedding, which in this day, it would have been a multi-day celebration, a feast or a festival that went on for a week or so. And in the middle of the festivities, Samson gathers together a bunch of Philistines, and he decides that he's going to tell them a riddle. And we don't know why he does this. Maybe Samson's violating his, his vow and he's drinking and it seemed like a good idea at the time. Or maybe he's actually the only sober guy and he's just messing with all the drunk people. But either way, he tells them this riddle and he makes a bet that they won't be able to solve it. And the bet is he makes a deal with these 30 Philistine men that if they can't solve the riddle, then each one of them has to give him a new set of clothes. So he's going to get 30 sets of clothes. But if they can solve the riddle, then he has to give each one of them a set of clothes. He has to give away 30 sets of clothes. And everybody in the middle of this wedding seems like, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's do this. And so here's the riddle that Samson tells in Judges 14, 14. He goes, all right, here it is. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. And they have a week to figure out the riddle. Now, here's the thing I just can't get over with this story. This has to be the worst joke that anybody has ever told, right? Because the whole thing is based on a personal experience he had by himself, and nobody else was there, and nobody else even knows about it. And so to answer this riddle, that out of the eat or something eat, out of the strong something sweet, the answer to the riddle is a lion filled with honey. And this is something that only Samson has ever seen or knows about. It's not like a thing that happens. This is the worst joke that's ever been told. It would be like me going, all right, here's one for you. Guess what color my neighbor's truck is? And you're like, I don't know. And I'm like, gray. That's not a good joke. That's not even a joke at all, right? That's what Samson does here. He's like, again, maybe he's drunk and he's just messing with people, but this is the riddle he tells. So, of course, nobody can figure it out, but they don't want to lose the bet. So the Philistines go to Samson's bride and they threaten her. They say, either get Samson to tell us or get Samson to tell you the answer to the riddle, or we're going to burn you and your whole family. Okay, so she caves, she goes to Samson and convinces him to tell her the answer to the riddle. He does, and then she goes to the Philistines and she tells them. And they come and say, we've figured it out. Verse 18, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? The answer is a lion filled with honey. Samson knows that there's no way they figured this out on her own. So he does the math and he realizes that the one person he told, his Philistine bride, must be the one who sold him out. And here's what he says to him, in, says to them in verse 18. He says, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Now, as a pastor who's done a lot of weddings, I've heard some pretty awkward wedding speeches. I've never heard the groom call his bride a heifer. Um, that's when the record scratches and the music stops in the story. I don't recommend it. But then, realizing that he's lost the bet, 
and he has to pay up, Samson totally loses control at this point. Remember, he has to give a new set of clothes to these 30 Philistine men. So he goes out, finds 30 other men, and kills them all, takes their clothes, and brings them back and gives them to all of his wedding guests. Verse 19 says, Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home, and Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. So he kills all these people, takes their clothes, gives the clothes away, the bed is settled. He leaves his own wedding before it's over, and he goes back home. His bride is left at the altar. So the father of the bride goes, Well, who's going to marry my daughter now? And the best man goes, Well, I will. And the father says, great. And so the bride marries the best man. Now, I know this is weird and hard for us to understand, but in the ancient Hebrew culture, if the bride marries the best man, that's bad. That's not how it's supposed to go. And then in chapter 15, some time has passed. Samson's cooled off. He regrets leaving his wedding without getting married. So he decides to go back and to win his bride back. And he doesn't know at this point that she has in fact married his best man. So his plan is to go and to wine and dine her, to woo her, and to hope that she will take him back. And he really wants to impress her. And so he brings her the most romantic gift he can think of. Better than roses, better than jewelry, better than champagne, Judges 15.1. Samson took a young goat and said, I'm going to my wife's room. Okay, so fellas, next time you're in the doghouse, this is my... Might be something you want to try. And the father of the bride says to Samson, she's not here anymore. She, I thought you hated her. She married your best man. And now Samson freaks out. And this is where things start getting really out of hand. And this is the beginning of this cycle of revenge. In verse 3, listen to the words that Samson sa says. This time... I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. This is the vocabulary of vengeance that throughout this entire narrative drives the story forward. I have a right to get even. Samson feels that he's been wronged and therefore he has the right to get even with them. They hurt me, so they deserve to be hurt by me. And so, what does he do? How is he going to get even for the Philistines uh, marrying off his bride? Well, he does what any of us would do. In verse 4, So he went out and caught 300 foxes and tied them tail to tail in pairs, like you do. He then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, lit the torches, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain. This is such an amazing story. Okay, so he catches 300 foxes and ties them together, sets their tails on fire, and sends them out into the fields, destroying the grain crops. We're told this is harvest time. And so essentially, this is an act of what we might call economic terrorism against the Philistines. He's going after their lifeline. And um, the Philistines 
figure out that somebody has terrorized them, and they go, well, who did this? In verse 6, we're told it was Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. Again, pay attention to the vocabulary of vengeance. It's not just that Samson did this thing, but he did it because, in response to, Because of something they had done to him, he's now going to do something to him. But it doesn't stop there. The very next word is so. So, because of what Samson had done to them, so the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. You see how this cycle of revenge keeps swirling. It's this downward spiral of payback. Since Samson did this horrible thing to us, we're going to do this thing to him. Since he's causing us pain and suffering, we're going to cause him pain and suffering. So they go kill his bride and her dad. Okay, verse 7. Samson said to them, Since you've acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. And so he acted, he attacked viciously, and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. The vocabulary of vengeance. Because you did this to me, I swear, I will not stop until I get my revenge. Because you hurt me, because you took something from me, I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to take something from you. And he goes on a rampage and kills a whole bunch of men, and then he goes and hides closer to his hometown, in a cave. Now, this could be the end of the story, and it would already be a tragedy, but it's not over yet. This cycle of revenge continues. So the Philistines go looking for Samson among his people, and in verse 10, they find a bunch of Israelites, and they say, we have come to do to Samson as he did to us. We're going to do to him what he did to us. We're going to pay him back. And so the Israelites, they go and find Samson, and they're like, why did you kill all these Philistines? Now you've put all of us in danger. And so Samson justifies what he's done in verse 11 by saying, I merely did to them what they did to me. Do you see how this thing just keeps ponging back and forth, back and forth? You did this to me, so I'm going to do this to you. And back and forth it goes. I was simply doing what they did to me. Which starts sounding a little less absurd and a little more familiar. They hurt me, so I want to hurt them. They wronged me, so I'm going to wrong them. And we end up saying things and doing things that we would never do otherwise. And so they take Samson, bring him to the Philistines, his own people, hand him over, and they tie him up in ropes as their prisoner. And that's when, again, Samson's superhuman strength comes out in verse 15. Samson breaks out of the ropes, and listen, finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey He grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. And then he writes a poem. With a donkey's jawbone, 
I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. One thousand people are dead. This has turned into an absolute bloodbath. And over what? How did all this start? It all started when Samson's best man married his wife. It all started with this little family quarrel between two or three people. And then it escalated and escalated. It snowballed and snowballed. More and more vengeance, more and more violence, more and more payback. This crazy cycle that starts including more and more people, more and more pain, more and more suffering. And now a thousand people are dead because of a bad joke at a wedding. You wronged me, so I'm going to wrong you. You hurt me. So I'm going to hurt you. And this absurd, wacky story starts sounding pretty familiar. Because we've all found ourselves in conflicted relationships. We've all had people that have hurt us in one way or another. We've all had to decide how we're going to respond when someone wrongs us. And there's this natural human instinct that says, you hurt me, so I want to hurt you. You wronged me, so I'm going to wrong you. Now, very rarely for us would it lead to killing a bunch of Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. But it does lead to us saying hurtful things to people we love that we would never say otherwise. It does lead to us treating those around us poorly because of how they've treated us. It does lead for us wish, lead to us wishing or celebrating someone else's failure or loss because we want to see them hurt. See, again, the theme of the book of Judges is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Meaning, rather than seeing things as they actually are, they're seeing things in a warped or distorted way. Instead of seeing the world and themselves and each other through the eyes of God in a way that corresponds to truth, they're seeing the world in their own eyes. They're determining for themselves what's right, wrong, good, bad, up and down. Rather than trusting God, they are each trusting themselves. They're seeing the world through their own eyes, or in other words, their understanding and perception of reality is badly distorted and warped. And when you are blinded to reality and seeing things through your own eyes, that's when something like this happens. That's when something like revenge starts to make sense. That's when you start thinking that paying somebody back or trying to get even with those who have wronged you, when you're seeing the world through a distorted lens, 
that's when revenge starts to sound like a good idea. But the truth is, amongst other things, the problem with revenge is it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. If you pay attention to this story, if you pay attention to your own story, the cycles of payback and revenge, they never solve the problem. They always make the problem worse. Think about somebody who's hurt you. Maybe in just a small, everyday way, maybe in a huge, life-changing way. And you decide, I'm going to teach them a lesson. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. You betrayed me, I'm going to betray you. You're ignoring me, I'm going to ignore you. I'm going to give you a taste of your own medicine. We have all kinds of phrases to capture this idea of payback or revenge. I'm going to teach you a lesson. Think about it. Does that ever work? Does anyone ever actually learn a valuable life lesson from being mistreated? Do you ever have somebody that does to you what you did to them and you're like, oh, thanks so much for doing that. That really was a valuable lesson. I'm going to be a much kinder, more compassionate, more loving, more loyal person now because of the way you paid me back. It never works. It just leads to more pain, more problems. So amongst other things, the problem with seeking revenge is that it doesn't work. But for followers of Jesus, that's not actually the biggest problem with seeking revenge. See, in the story of Samson, twice we're told that the players were doing to others what others had done to them. But for Christians, that's not the call upon our lives. Jesus calls us not to do to others as they do to us. But what? To do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Christians have for many years made the distinction between the way of the sword and the way of the cross. The way of violence, retribution, payback, getting even, and the way of Jesus. The way of co-suffering, self-sacrificial love. One writer puts it this way. Jesus' disciples didn't understand the way of the cross. They only understood the way of the sword. My sisters and brothers, Christianity is about taking up one's cross, not taking up one's sword. The two are mutually exclusive. In fact, in the early church, if a Roman soldier wanted to become a Christian, he was often required to quit his job. I dare say that most of us, myself included, prefer the way of the sword to the way of the cross. But for Jesus Christ and the church, victory is found in nonviolence and meekness, not in war and dominance. We are victorious in God's eyes when we turn the other cheek, love our enemies, and pray for those who persecute us. Jesus calls us to lay down the sword or the 
donkey jawbone or whatever your preferred instrument of violence is and to take up our cross and to follow him. How can we do this? How can we ensure that we and our loved ones are going to be okay if we're committed to the way of the cross rather than the way of the sword? Where is our source of strength? Where is our sense of security? How can we make ourselves so vulnerable not to seek to get even with those who wrong us? Our source of strength, our source of security, our source of hope is in Jesus himself, who on the cross does not give us what we deserve, does not pay us back for our sins, but instead pays for our sins for us. This is the loving, accepting grace of our Father, that he doesn't treat us as we deserve. He treats us as Jesus deserves to be treated. And in him, we find this amazing, unending source of life, strength, and security. That God himself is our protector, our provider. As Paul says in Romans 12, that vengeance belongs to the Lord. Our ultimate hope as followers of Jesus is that one day God is going to come in Christ and make everything new again, everything right again. That this world will once again become a world of peace and justice where everyone has everything they need. We long for that day. We wait for that day. We, we witness to that day and seek to embody it here and now as much as we can. But our ultimate hope for those that have wronged me, for those that I've wronged, for hurt individuals, families, nations, is that Jesus himself will make everything right. I've told you the story before of several years ago, my son Mo and I were eating cereal and talking theology. He was four. And he said, Dad, what would you do if there were no God? And I said, well, I'd be really sad and I'd have to get a new job. And I said, what would you do, Mo? And he said, I'd go out and find all the bad guys and punch them in the eyeball. And I said, well, why wouldn't you do that now? <laughs> and he said, well, if there is a God, then he can take care of all the bad guys. Four years old, and he got it. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, for it is written, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. 
The way of the cross is revenge, violence, payback, getting even. The way of the sword never works. But the way of the cross is co-suffering, self-sacrificing love. It's Jesus hanging there, praying for those that are literally killing him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And as those who are the recipients of that prayer of forgiveness, as those who have been invited into the depth of the life with God that Jesus has enjoyed for all eternity, we find our source of strength and security to live in this world as those who seek justice, those who pursue peace, and those who love even when it's costly.